Hey everyone, have you been enjoying this series? If so, there's something really simple you can do to help us. Go on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you've been using to listen to the show and leave us a nice comment and a good star rating. It just takes a minute and it will do wonders for helping new people discover the series. So, thanks a lot and on with the show. This is London's New York. Today, we're visiting a place that's tremendously important to Daniel and looms large in his personal history. And it's a little funny because as it is now, it would be hard to imagine a more banal spot anywhere in the five boroughs. Located between Trinity Place and Broadway, where they meet Liberty and Cedar Streets in Lower Manhattan, it's a small open space that's officially listed as a park, but it's really more of a courtyard, almost a glorified air shaft, really. An open concrete rectangle surrounded by office buildings. It has a few small shade trees, some concrete benches, and a couple of uninspired-looking flower beds. But there's nothing comfortable or even interesting about it. You get the impression that it was put there by people who were required to build a public space because of a zoning law or something, but really didn't want to. It's the kind of place where you might stop to tie your shoes or maybe wolf down a quick hot dog from one of the nearby push carts if you happen to work in the neighborhood, but not a place anyone would want to linger very long. And it's very hard to imagine it being a place where formative life memories could have been made. But this pointedly unremarkable little patch of ground is, of course, Zuccotti Park. And in the fall of 2011, it was the site of one of the most noteworthy acts of long-term civil disobedience in our country's history, the Occupy Wall Street campout. For two months, this was the site of a massive, anarchic, 24-hour-a-day social experiment in public protesting. And in the thick of it was a fresh-faced 26-year-old historian and activist named Dan London. All right, so we're at Zuccotti Park right now, uh, formerly grand delicately called Liberty Square by some occupiers, but really we, we just called it Zuccotti. That was the only basis on which we were pragmatic, perhaps. I haven't really come back here since I was on the town planning committee of Occupy Wall Street. And, uh, you know, it still is a little disappointing to come back here uh, or to even to think about the space after the events. I mean, I'm because it, it's so empty. That particular autumn seven years ago, this little, quote, park, end quote, was anything but empty. It was a massive conglomeration of all kinds of people, from young punk anarchists to aging hippies to serious academic socialists, trade union leaders to college kids to homeless people, who were all loosely united around their anger at the international financial system, which so many blamed for the crashing economy. It was in this interesting sort of charge moment where there had been uh, the Arab Spring earlier in that year. Obama had come into office. Uh, and there was this big Wall Street financial disaster. And, um, you know, there had been protests against Wall Street that year. There had, you know, there, was, there had been something in City Hall a little earlier. Um, but, you know, the, the story is that uh, this 
Canadian activist group Adbusters uh, wanted to stage a protest uh, by Wall Street. And very serendipitously, uh, they decided to camp out uh, on this site after the protest. And this site is a private park, not a public park, but that had the benefit of the fact that the private parks are open 24-7, or at least this one was, as opposed to the public parks, which have to close. So theoretically, people could stay here all night as opposed to being in a public park. So they happened to choose the right kind of park for a camp out. And so they decided to stay here. And uh, it just got more and more attention and more and more press after that. And, uh, you know, I heard about it certainly a few weeks into it. But, uh, you know, once I came to visit it, uh, I was sort of hooked. My impression from the outside at the time was that this park and the hundreds of people who were occupying it every day were a kind of political Rorschach test. Some people looked at it and saw a rebirth of the spirit of social activism that they missed from the 1960s. Some saw an opportunity for an all-night party. Some saw a serious attempt to model a new kind of civil society. And some saw a bunch of spoiled kids patting themselves on the back. But whatever Occupy was or wasn't, for a few weeks in 2011, it absolutely had the attention of the country streets to express their anger and make sure their message is heard. But what exactly is their message? We sent NBC's Michelle Franzen to find out. We are the 99%. Two weeks and counting. Several hundred faithful protesters. Thirst. <laughs> the Occupy Wall Street movement has basically been a four-week downtown Manhattan live-in, which has spread to cities all around the country, causing the media to move its coverage dial from blackout to circus. All the major media outlets were covering it extensively, and celebrities from Susan Sarandon to Kanye West to Roseanne Barr were stopping by to see what the fuss was about. I mean, my associations with Zuccotti during its height, just, it was this amazing experiment in how much human creativity can exist on one square block without it disrupting other people's lives. You know, how much tensions between different visions of the future and different social configurations of the left can exist on one block. So it really was, you know, of course I was going to get involved in it. Um, and it shaped my political outlook for years to come, really. What does that mean to have been on the town planning committee for, what is, there were committees? There were, there were many, many committees, and maybe some of the things I'll talk to you about is just how at its height, this area was just a hive of different working groups. There were working groups in the Burger King over there that were meeting. There were, there were tons of working groups meeting inside uh, the J.P. Morgan building, a couple of blocks north of here, under the belly of the beast, so to speak. Uh, there were working groups in the cemetery of Trinity Church, and they were dealing with all sorts of things. There was environmental justice, African-American uh, rights, uh, women, labor, etc. Um, like all around us were these small 
cadres of people figuring things out. The town planning committee was basically in charge of allocating uh, space for the different functions of Occupy. And the different functions, you know, there's a assembly, there's a, a communications area, there's places for people to sleep, there's a kitchen. We needed to find out a way of having space for all these things. So in a sense, it was as close to actual centralized planning as we got in Occupy. Uh, so well, it was it, sort of a cool responsibility. But who gave you that responsibility and how was it were you listening to? Well, no. Suggestions of your committee? Yeah, well, it was extremely uh, open. I mean, you could call it anarchic or democratic, but people had an idea. We talked to another person. Someone said, hey, there should be some decisions about how things are being allocated, how space is being allocated. We don't want the people, you know, putting up sleeping bags in the middle of the assembly, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, it was this experiment where we came up with ideas, we came up with maps, we came to the General Assembly, we had some very vague sort of suggestions, and people would vote on it. And, uh, you know, in some of those early weeks, it seemed like things were proceeding, you know, that we weren't being stonewalled, there weren't too many disruptions, at least on that kind of thing. Uh, you know, the big divisions within Occupy were these broader structural things about grand strategy and grand visions of the future in some ways. But on something a little more tactical, like how much space is the kitchen going to have, um, you know, we were in the space. We could see what we needed. You know, I could just point to where people were sleeping and say, we need a little road over there, you know. So in some ways, it was much more pragmatic, right, uh, dealing with things like town planning. So my big contribution for the town planning committee, besides having, you know, some suggestions, I went to the architect's office who designed Zuccotti Park, and I asked for their plans, the renderings, because up till that point we were just using Google Earth to try to make our own maps using GIS of the area, and uh, that did not work. I sucked at GIS. So I went to their office. They did not tell me give me anything, but I saw that they had a book in their office uh, of all their plans, so I just basically scanned it. I took a photograph of it with my camera, I scanned it, and then someone else just traced the outline of the plan, and now every time you see an Occupy, well, a map of Zuccotti Park under Occupy, it's probably based on that map. So that is my, that's my grandest contribution to this whole thing. Intellectual property theft. Yeah. So the area uh, facing um, Trinity uh, over here, Trinity and Liberty Street, uh, was the sort of the creative area. It's where all the signs that were ever assembled and made, uh, they were all made over here. The kitchen was set up, uh, and it really was, a, you know, an amazing operation. Uh, and so we were all the time pretty well stocked with provisions here. We had uh, sort of a free lending library over here. We had a huge volunteer check-in station that just was a miracle of, you know, you want to volunteer, great, here are all the working groups. They had to update it constantly because everyone was always coming up with new stuff. Uh, and it's also where all the debates happened with passerbys. You can imagine every single day you got these people going to Wall Street and, uh, you know, we would, they would come up to us, we'd come up to them, we'd have discussions about stuff. 
One guy saw my uh, a pin on me and thought I had a Karl Marx pin. It was Walt Whitman. There's a few guys who were just looking for fights on our side and their side. But at its best, there was this sense of this is a vital spot where if you want to talk about serious issues, you can. You know, just at any, it was like, you know, fresh air. Like at any given day, you could come over here and you'd have these really interesting discussions. The only thing I can tell you is that if you want to convert them, is that if you want to convert them, you should do it in an imminent way. You should do it in an imminent way. At its best, at its worst, it was people just screaming at each other. The real heart of it. Uh, was this section. Uh, this was the General Assembly where uh, at certain points during the day you would have collective decisions being made and uh, there was a whole elaborate system of hand signals used to express uh, approval, disapproval, point of order, because we weren't allowed to use amplified noise. We couldn't use loudspeakers, uh, so we needed to uh, register our approval or disapproval in a more quiet way. And we also had an elaborate system of callbacks where one person would say a word or a few words and other people would repeat it uh, so that everyone around the entire park after a few repetitions would hear what had been said. We couldn't use machines to amplify our voices, so we had other people amplify our voices. Right. I mean, I remember that. I came to visit once because I was curious about it. And that, yeah. The, one of my was the sort of mic check. And the mic was, checks, again. yeah. Of course, people were selective about this. If I was to say something that people disagreed with, maybe some people would not want to communicate it, you know. Though it was an interesting experiment in having other people say the words of someone who they might disagree with. At its most ideal, you would hope that creates a sense of greater deliberation because everyone is saying what everyone else is saying. Did you end up camping out? I, I did not. The people who were camping out were mostly the sort of anarchist black block, what we would call the crust punks, who are very much about tearing down and disrupting the existing system. And I just have a lot of very vivid memories of, I saw this one guy like with a burp, like with an American flag on the ground, just like, you know, stepping on it. And I like, in my early naive days, I was like telling him, you know, why are you doing that? Like, you know, we have cameras rolling, we want to expand our base. I remember this one guy playing his guitar on one of these benches as loudly as humanly possible and everyone else sort of just going by their business, ignoring him. And for that was like in a nutshell, like Occupy at its worst, you know, just a bunch of these guys trying to just let out their steam without caring about, you know, how it's affecting the movement. There was a huge drum circle that was always around here, the infamous drum circles. And I remember at one point, actually, no, this was on October 1st, the most glorious day of the movement in some ways for me, and I'll talk more about that later. There was a huge drum circular, and people couldn't even hear the, that the order had been given to march. So the whole rest of Occupy was moving and making this big thing, and there were some drummers here who were playing so loudly that no one could hear uh, the, the orders. 
And in fact, that was a perennial problem that there were drum circle people here at all hours of the night and barely anyone could get a lot of sleep. So that was, again, one of the things that had to go under governance. And there were lots of debates over this about, you know, the degree of drum circling that should be allowed. We'll be right back after these brief messages. If you're enjoying this show, you might also like some of the other podcasts on Race Car Radio. For instance, try The Newberry Report, two New York improv actresses discussing children's books, specifically every book that's won the Newberry Medal, year by year and decade by decade. It's smart, silly, engaging, and touching, and we promise it's your new favorite book club. Listen and subscribe now at racecarradio.com. Race Car Radio is proud to support the work of IO Worldwide, a tenacious and dedicated organization working to address the root causes of poverty in West Africa. Because they believe that who a person is and where they come from should not solely determine what they are able to achieve. To learn about their work and how you can support it, please visit ayaworldwide.org. And now back to London's New York. So you talked about the big day. Sure. The one big day, you said October 1st. Well, what happened on that day? Well, there was supposed to be a protest uh, just going over to the municipal building. I think it was just supposed to be a typical thing. So we all were here, we, we began the walk. I had to, you know, yell down the drum circle people to start. But then as we approached the, the city hall, uh, some of the organizers started to push us towards the Brooklyn Bridge, or not push, but they started to direct us there. And the interesting thing about the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, there's two entrances. There's one for pedestrians, one for cars. So the majority of us were going on the pedestrian ramp, but a whole bunch went on the car ramp, blocking the traffic. And so I was on, you know, the pedestrian ramp overlooking the carway, and the surge was going forward and across the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, we had helicopters going over us, uh, and uh, later on, someone wrote a poem about the event evoking Walt Whitman, actually. The sense of, you know, in the spot where Walt Whitman was celebrating the Democratic Mass, uh, crossing the ferries of the East River, here we were, the sort of latter-day Democratic Mass, crossing the river again, going the opposite way, you know, espousing these values. Anyway, so we got to the middle of the bridge, and the police... And this is sort of a controversial thing. The police either were drawing us into a trap or we were pushing them forward. Regardless, uh, the police was able to stop the crowd on the roadway from one end. And then from the other end, they surrounded them from behind and they began to arrest them en masse in front of our eyes while we were on the pedestrian ramp. And so... You know, there's some images that are just amazing. You have these protesters locking arms on the top of the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, hundreds of feet up, the cops going in, arresting them, and the protesters yelling out their names and information for people in the Legal Defense Fund uh, to jot down so that they can get them out of jail later. And I know a few people who went to jail that day, and they'll have that on their records, you know, forever after this. Let me tell you, my, sure, sure. my impression of Occupy at the time... Okay was not real positive. Right, right. And it was... I felt... This is what I felt. 
watching it as an outsider. Yes. Was that yeah. that it did this incredible job of getting the attention right. of the world's media. Right. That right. Every television channel was covering it. Yes. Every newspaper. It was everywhere. Everyone all the cameras were here. Right, right. And they all said, Okay, you people here. Yeah. What do you want? What do you want? <laughs> and everyone here said, Yeah. Right. Right. So there it was discordant. And I I totally agree. Which is a wasted opportunity. It felt like there was the opportunity, like the world's attention was like, okay, great. You have this movement. What 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 do you want? What do we do? What are your what are your demands? It's like a hostage situation with no ransom. It was like, well, what what do you want? And 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 the, and the yeah. group said, we well, want to have a drum circle. Well, like, okay, so I agree that is the perception, and I yeah. think that's still strongly my perception of its excesses. And um, I remember the day before Occupy got shut down by Bloomberg, uh, I was walking back here at night, and there were some anarchists. Uh, there were some anarchist. Uh, Leaf, flyer people, leafleters on the corner, and they were saying all these, you know, sort of outrageous things, and to capital, and to state, and uh, you know, I got in a bit of an argument with them or a debate, and then I went home, and then the next day they shut it down, and I remember looking, reading the news, and I was kind of like, fine, you know, that that's enough of that, because um, just these. I, I had had it up to there. In academia, I had been taking classes with all these professors who were more left than thou, and I just felt how irrelevant a lot of what they were saying seemed from the point of view of the average American. And I came over here, and all my democratic hopes seemed to be wasted because I saw the same kind of grad students, the same kind of celebrity professors, you know, the same kinds of inflammatory, tactless kind of rhetoric. And uh, it was because of that moment I became sort of disillusioned from politics for a while, and I became this much more centrist Brookings Institute kind of liberal for a while, where I said, social movements don't cause great change. Radical rhetoric doesn't. Radical actions doesn't. It's centrist people who are able to form coalitions uh, and get things done behind the scenes, you know. Um, and... Uh, no, I have this dual identity, right, of being this inheritor of a socialist tradition, which is about class conflict, about, you know, public ownership, all these radical ideas. But at the same time, it's an intensely populist movement which has to involve itself with the average American. And the average American doesn't necessarily, um, you know, want to see the boat rocked all that much, right? And so I, I somehow... And I, and I admire that. I see there's a lot of things about the society that need to be saved as, long, as well as need to be transformed. And so finding that balance became much more important for me after this. But I think I sort of over-committed myself to the centrist position. Now, what changed that was Bernie Sanders. Uh, you know, I, even when Bernie was running, I was sort of holding him to a certain extent at elbow's length. Because um, I felt like Hillary Clinton, at least she is the centrist, pragmatic. She'll get things done. She won't alienate people from her cause. Ha! And, uh... Yeah, that was my thinking, too. Yeah. So, so much for that plan. Yeah. But it, too much pressure was placed on Occupy, I feel. Like, it was, it was uh, 
supposed to be the basis of a new left. It was supposed to formulate a new program. It was supposed to, uh, you know, there were so many things that have been left undone in American radicalism for the past 20 years. And all of a sudden, Occupy happens. It's, un it's understandable that we were a little flat-footed, you know. So I, I've definitely changed my mind about some things, but I definitely agree that uh, a lot of the opportunity was wasted. There's no doubt about that. Do you think 10 years from now anyone will have heard of Occupy Wall Street? Well, the language of 99% and 1% and et cetera, I think that, attempt, that, that framing of economic inequality in those terms, we still have that today. You know, we see that in many places uh, to the point where you know, some people would say that actually represents a victory, capital V. I wouldn't go that far, but it is some kind of victory. You know, if there's a just, if there's a just God and something like, you know, there's a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or a Nina Turner or something like that, if there is a rising tide of that, I'm, I'm like 60, 70 percent certain that people will trace the beginnings of that sort of left liberal tide to Occupy Wall Street. I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll reference that. However Occupy Wall Street might or might not be remembered in the future, there's one place where it's been completely forgotten, and that's at Zuccotti Park itself. There's no marker, no tourist guide, no way at all that a random passerby would ever know about what happened here. I mean, you know, we, we memor there's so many other radical spaces in New York that have memorials, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, the Union Square, uh, some of the places in City College, some of the places in Harlem where Malcolm X spoke, etc. And I would want there to be some acknowledgement that, uh, you know, the worst economic crisis since the Depression happened and people noticed and tried to get together and do something about it right here. But instead, it's this, it's back to what it was, this vacant resting point between shopping trips for tourists. Uh, you know, it's, it's really, it's really a crime, you know? My name is David Hoffman, and I produced this show. With me, as always, is Daniel London. The song playing in the background right now was written by Kenny Siegel and Chris Rael and performed by Chris Rael and Friends. Never miss an episode of London's New York by subscribing to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and most of your other favorite podcast apps. You can find those links at racecarradio.com slash York. 
That's with no apostrophe before the S. We'd love to hear your feedback on this episode and your ideas for future shows. Please come interact with the show on Facebook and Twitter at LNY Podcast. London's New York is a production of Race Car Radio, www.racecarradio.com.